Welcome to the public morality. Former National Security Advisor John Bolton is the latest entry in the tell-all behind-the-scenes report of President Donald Trump in his memoir, The Room Where It Happened. Bolton portrays a president who is not intellectually curious, preferring to focus on how key issues impact him personally more so than the American people. It is an unflattering expose of a president willing to dance with treasonous behavior for the sake of re-election, presented in a package that touts the efficacy of the policies Bolton personally champions. It's also paradoxical in that some of the charges Bolton accuses the president where he places personal benefit over the country are the same charges his critics levy in his blatant unwillingness to testify in the House impeachment hearings against President Trump, preferring instead to secure the profits offered by an advance. Recently, University of Texas political science professor Jeffrey Tulis at TheBulwark.com wrote, quote, If Bolton's book helps defeat Trump in November, it will be good for the nation. Yet, concerned citizens cannot help but be disgusted by Bolton's character. How dare he chastise House Democrats for impeachment malpractice for not investigating offenses that were not part of the public conversation that were unknown to most citizens and office holders for which his testimony would have made a difference. We wanted to have Professor Tuas on to speak about his article and the tangential impact of this memoir. Professor Jeffrey Tulis, welcome to The Public Morality. Uh, happy to be here. Mm-hmm. Let, let, let's begin with why you decided to pin uh, this piece about John Bolton uh, for Bullock.com. Well, I've been writing some other things for them as well, and one of the ongoing themes is the sort of demise of honor in politics. Uh, uh, I wrote something myself, and then I wrote a couple things, co-authored with Bill Crystal back in December, January, around the impeachment uh, battle, about how stunning it was how uh, Republican senators were willing to simply uh, ignore, maybe even besmirch, the special oath that they were required to take as judges and jurors in the impeachment trial, that they simply either didn't care about it or actually intentionally mischaracterized its significance uh, in order to um, sort of effectuate a purely partisan uh, outcome against the duties of their office. So uh, that was a kind of ongoing theme. And in the case of Bolton, he had been perfectly primed to be a kind of antidote at, the, at that very moment to this dishonoring of American politics and to this decay of the constitutional order. And he chose instead to uh, uh, either resist or put up roadblocks to his testimony before uh, the House uh, and uh, and, and the Senate, uh, which meant there were no witnesses called, and it really sort of derailed the uh, the trial part of the impeachment process. Uh, and uh, and the only reason he did that, I mean, the only uh, reason that can account for that, is the desire to make a lot of money off of this book. And it just seemed to me um, a, a kind of case study in the demise of even 
even what we used to understand as ambition in the United States, where somebody thought, well, geez, I want to become famous or I want to become a political leader. I want to become great because I want to achieve some sort of lasting fame for myself to have accomplished something in my life. Uh, and so for that sort of person, money was always instrumental. It wasn't the end, end of the game. The idea was it could get you into a position in which you might be able to actually do something in the world that you could look back on and be proud of. And here's a guy who had a long uh, life, and uh, as we were discussing before the show, I don't necessarily admire his views, but he was an accomplished person. He had a lot of jobs. He'd done a lot of things that he thought were in the public interest. And uh, in this moment where he had a chance to actually do something lasting and important, he chose money instead. And so that's why I decided to write the, uh, the piece. Well, having read your piece, uh, I'll pose the question to you. Is it, is it possible to simultaneously hold seemingly contradictory feelings in, in that um, one could accept uh, the, the content uh, uh, of former national security advisor, or the allegations, I should say, of former national security advisor John Bolton uh, about President Trump's corruption and his incompetence, but simultaneously be repulsed by his decision um, not to testify, as you just stated, uh, preferring uh, for what appears to be preferring uh, to take profits. Can we, can we hold those two things simultaneously? Absolutely. Uh, and I, I, there's nothing to indicate that despite this flaw that I was highlighting, um, that he's a dishonest man. There, there's nothing at all in his record that suggests that he's ever had a record of, 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 of telling lies, making stuff up, uh, uh, exaggerating, none of that. Um, and so uh, while he chose not to oper uh, while he chose not to act at the moment in which uh, he might have been most uh, public spirited, uh, I don't for a second doubt his report of what he saw. And what, what I try to do in the article is to actually step back and say, well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe uh, this guy has decided, look, you know, you're wrong that that was the opportune time to make this point because Trump was going to uh, win that uh, uh, impeachment battle no matter what I said. So I could be much more effective if I revealed all this stuff at the right moment as the campaign was heating up. Uh, in order to uh, accelerate the process of uh, his electoral defeat. Uh, and if you look at the pattern of what's actually happened since his revelations, uh, you could say, well, maybe that he did that. And that's why at the end of the article I say, well, if that's the way you think, why not, uh, why not emphasize it and say, that's what I think, and I'm going to give 80% of the, 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 the income or profits from this to uh, efforts to defeat this uh this uh, potential uh, uh, authoritarian. So, so I do, I do think I, I do try to say, well, is there a way we can think of him actually behaving responsibly? And that's what it would be. Mm -hmm. That he would he would say, look, I could have said this stuff then, but it would have just uh, it would have just uh, uh, been forgotten by now. Whereas now we're really starting to get some traction. Well, that sort of leads me nicely into my next question. Um, 
taking you already took one step back in writing the piece. Yeah, taking yeah. taking another step back. Right. Are we are we better for knowing? Uh, and I'm thinking because if 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 you are anti-Trump, you probably um, some to some degree not surprised. If you're pro President Trump, then this doesn't move you. So in the final analysis, are, are, are we better any better knowing that yet another allegation has been made that the president? sought a foreign power to influence his election? Well, I, I think it's possible that it does make a difference uh, in a co concert with all the other things that are happening at this particular moment. And it's, it's being uh, reflected in the polling numbers, which have, which have dropped precipitously for him just over the last three weeks um, and uh, causing all sorts of consternation in his inner circle, causing him reportedly to be depressed and freaked out and all that. So I, I do think that um, I do think that it, it isn't just this, but when you have this, which lends credibility, for example, to this latest report that he uh, uh, didn't care about uh, this uh, Russian attempt to uh, to uh, uh, put bounties on U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan and British soldiers in Afghanistan. It just all adds up to a situation in which, in the midst of a pandemic, the American people are more widely coming to realize that he's a problem, that he has a competency problem, if not just a morality problem. And it's starting to be reflected in the polls, so much so that it could be a landslide election. I mean, I don't want to predict that yet, and I don't want to jinx it. I don't want to jinx it. But it's definitely a possibility that it could be a, a kind of realigning election. Yeah. Professor Tools, you and I are in the circumspect business, so don't, don't yeah. predict. Don't predict. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Um, I could hear someone offering the following observation uh, to you and based on your, your recent piece. Professor Tulis, if, if John Bolton validates my suppositions, uh, why should I concern myself with the fact that he chose to make money rather than testify? How would you respond to that? Well, uh, um, at, at one level, it doesn't matter, uh, just as you're suggesting. But I think that the impeachment moment was a moment far more important than the fate of Donald Trump the person. Because uh, surrounding Donald Trump, the person, is the decay of the constitutional order more broadly and the abdication of Congress of its fundamental responsibilities. Um, and the revitalization of the impeachment process was actually vital to that, to repairing this downward spiral uh, or decay of the constitutional order. So uh, his decision or his decision to sort of try to uh, uh, maximize his own personal interest rather than the interest of the country does trouble me because it isn't just it isn't just literally which is the best route to get rid of Donald Trump but it was partly disabling something that is uh, you know vital to the separation of power system and one of the problems with having a failed impeachment process, and by the way, I don't think it would have been failed just with acquittal. We didn't have the, the witnesses or anything. One of the problems is that it makes it even less likely to use that process uh, going forward. And the less likely that it's used, 
the less empowered are Congress's other tools that it has for powers of oversight, inquiry, and so forth, because those depend on the possibility of impeachment. Uh, and so the longward trend of this is to actually disempower the legislature. Uh, and that's a, that's a bigger problem than Donald Trump. That's going to that's gonna live on past Donald Trump. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with University of Texas political science professor Jeffrey Tulison. We're discussing uh, his recent piece uh, for Bulwark.com and the tangential impact of uh, former National Security Advisor John Bolton's new memoir, The Room Where It Happened. You know, Professor Tullis, I'm, I'm thinking about your last answer, and, and, I'm, and I'm wondering, I, I just said earlier that you, you, are, you and I are, are uh, in the circumspect business more so than, than the, the prognostication uh, business. Um, easy for me to say this this afternoon. But is there something that, let's assume momentarily, uh, not a prediction, but it's an assumption momentarily that uh, Democrats win uh, in November, and they win big. So they have the House, um, they have the Senate, they have the presidency. As, as you well know, uh, there is a tendency, because politics is cyclical, then to do to the other party what has been done to us. Now we're in the majority. What would be your counsel uh to the Democrats, if in fact they were in that position of power, uh, to ensure that these things are not permanent, that that uh, there is some power and some teeth put back into uh, the impeachment process. Is there anything they could do uh, to to embolden the, the normal norm uh, address the normal erosion that you just talked about? Yeah, well, there are ways in which that it would be very very bad to imitate the people you've just defeated. So uh, to the extent that the Trump administration has attempted to undermine the rule of law, to the extent that it has attempted to target particular political opponents for judicial or criminal proceedings, all that sort of stuff, you can't do it in turn. You, you, you just can't do that. On the other hand, and uh, this goes a bit the other way, one has to learn the lesson from uh, the Reconstruction era and the Reconstruction period, that it would be a very, very big mistake for the Democrats to become too timid about the legitimate assertion of their political authority. I don't mean doing things that uh, are norm-breaking or things that are violating the law. I'm talking about restaffing the government, re-energizing uh, 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 a Democratic Party political agenda, and not uh, feeling that you have to be so nice to the other side that you have to have a coalition government or something like that. Taking advantage of the moment to restore some huge alternative to this partisan agenda, but not to imitate all the techniques and tactics and political shenanigans that they did. And, and that would include, because if you had a Democratic Congress, it would be a Congress in which, um, presumably, if they wanted to stand up to you, it would only be because you were making some sort of legal or uh, mistake or constitutional error. Because on the partisan side, there would be a kind of, uh, you know, there would be a kind of uh, wave in the same direction. Um, so I, I'm, I'm trying to say two things. One is do not imitate the anti-constitutional 
and quasi-legal and anti-legal aspects of Trumpism. But at the same time, don't be too nice uh, in a partisan sense to Republicans after this, uh, after this mess. Uh, how concerning is it to you, you know, based on the accounts? Not, so if we talk about, you know, John Bolton choosing to make money over um, doing a, what might say his patriotic duty, my words. Uh, but but we've seen, I mean, Bolton has profited, but uh, former Secretary of State Rex Tillerson said nothing um, while in office. Uh, Defense uh, uh, Secretary uh, and General, General Mattis didn't say anything. Uh, 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 Chief of Staff uh, John Kelly didn't say anything. So, it, I mean... I mean, it's always easy to look ex post facto, but but could, should someone have said something while in these positions, uh, maybe closed door, Capitol Hill? If you, if you when you're looking at that, uh, isn't there a constitutional responsibility to address some of the things that people saw, that especially those things that are going outside the boundaries of, of the legislative uh, of, of our uh, uh, democratic form of government? Yeah, uh, I mean, it's. Uh, I don't know what they knew, so I can't. I can't be that detailed about it. I think that you're absolutely right that they uh, should have spoken up more and more forcefully. Although Mattis fairly recently spoke up unusually forcefully, Mattis did right and fairly I'm saying, recently. And I'm, I'm saying at some point while in but, office, but, but while, while you're in office, pay, poses a little bit of a different problem. Because when you're in office, there is a kind of ethic that the way that you do that, if it's that serious, is that you resign and talk. That, that you can't simultaneously do your job and being undermining your administration at the same time. And so um, there are often a lot of things where you might have a policy disagreement, where there might be a gray area even on the legal question or the constitutional question. And if it's a gray area or if it's only a policy disagreement, uh, it isn't appropriate if you're holding the office to be undermining the president of the United States. So you either have to resign or you have to try to make the situation better, as it were, from the inside. And that's the kind of uh, calculation that people like Mattis and um, uh, I don't know about Tillerson because he had so little governmental experience. He didn't really know what he was doing. But, but Mattis had tons of it. And he was trying to balance that. I'm a, you know, I, I, I came up through the military. I know what it means to have to be in a, in a chain of command. And I know what it means uh, to support decisions with which I disagree. Uh, but once he resigned, uh, he might have spoken up earlier. Uh, but I, I wouldn't fault him for what he didn't say while he was in office. Mm-hmm. But if you sustain uh, for just a second, uh, you're the national security advisor. You're in the room with the president. And, uh, and and President Xi of, of of China and the president says buy more sorbines because it'll help me in my reelection. Do, do you just sit with that, or, or you know somewhere in the Constitution this is problematic? I'm just trying to find out <laughs> right, right. where's the line. <laughs> right. Well, but that's what happened though. It wasn't too long after that that that. Um, that Bolton actually did resign. And so that's when he should have been saying this stuff. Uh, if he had the reel to replay over again and he didn't resign, uh, what he would should be doing is saying, Mr. President, privately, do you realize what you just said? That was 
that was a big problem. And uh, you've got to do something about it, change it or something. Or I'm resigning and I'm going to tell people about it or something like that. That's that's what you're supposed to do in that sort of situation. Uh, you know, Trump is not that experienced of a guy. And so uh, it wouldn't be totally crazy for Bolton to sit him down and say, you can't say that. And when Trump says, well, I can say whatever the hell I want to say. That's the point at which Bolton says, well, then you, you've got a new national security advisor. I'm going to Congress. Now, I also understand that we're in uh, the midst of a, a global pandemic that um, uh, a play almost on biblical proportions. Yeah. Um, racial unrest. Do you worry that the charges that that we're talking that, that we're talking about some of the revelations in in uh, John Bolton's book that the president solicited aid for his reelection chances is just not enough news story to hold our attention beyond the normal two three day news cycle? Well, I, I think the dynamic is uh, is this that uh, there are two things that. Are happening. One is that uh, people that already have made up their minds that they don't like Trump, which is a majority of the country, um, need to be sufficiently motivated to go out to vote and to go out to vote in very trying circumstances where people's lives could be put at risk doing so because the Republicans are making it difficult to do mail-in ballots and all that sort of thing. So uh, one question is how do all these stories add up in a way that actually doesn't uh, diminish the, but in fact enhances voter turnout. The second thing is less important, but still not negligible, is that uh, historically about 85% of Republican, people who identify as Republicans have supported the Republican candidate for president. Trump is getting the support of over 90% of people who still identify as Republicans, it's a little misleading because a lot of people have stopped identifying as Republicans, but among the ones that remain identified. Mm -hmm. uh, and the calculation by uh, some of the people at the group I published that article with, uh, the Bulwark people, like uh, Republican voters against Trump and the Lincoln Project and some of these groups, um, which I'm very happy to uh, uh, applaud, but I'm not personally part of, they're effort is to try to cut that number down, to cut um, uh, Trump's support from, say, 92% of identified Republicans to 85% or 80%, uh, which is a very, it, it's not an impossible goal, and it's already being reflected in the polls. And these are the people for whom this information is all of a sudden new news. You might say, well, we've been hearing of this forever. But for a lot of these Republicans, it's starting to be new news because the pandemic has woken up people who previously were willing to buy Trump's fictions. Uh, he fictionalizes everything. Everything is a story. And they were willing to buy into the story. But when the story, it can be checked, fact-checked by the deaths of your relatives and the friends that are going to the hospital, all of a sudden you can't fictionalize it anymore. And once that happens, all the other stories you're telling get reread. And so, again, this isn't like there's going to be all of a sudden 25% Republicans are going to abandon the guy, but it, it only takes 6%, 10%, 7% to turn it into a landslide defeat for him. 
Um, and that's, that's what the dynamic looks like right now. Again, I'm not predicting it's going to hold up, but that's what they're trying. That, that's what those the people that are trying to push in that direction are hoping for. No worries, Professor Tools. Should should the outcome uh, differ from what you've said today, we will not play the tape. Yeah, right. You can play the tape because I'm not predicting. No, I'm we, just saying what people want. We'll edit that part out. What you said, I'm not predicting. We'll we'll conveniently edit that part now. <laughs> right. right. Uh, what does uh, the Bolton allegations say about the state of our democratic institutions? I mean. Uh, we know, or most know, that um, the president was soliciting help from foreign powers to aid his reelection. Uh, that was at the heart of the impeachment, uh, and the president's party in the Senate voted not to hear witnesses. I, I, I guess I'm, what I'm asking is, have we reached a point where the oath taken, not even the specific oath for the impeachment process, but the oath taken to defend and protect the Constitution is secondary now when it comes to politics? Well, for Republicans, that's the case. Uh, I mean, for the overwhelming number of Republicans, that's the case. It's a stunning development because they used to fashion themselves as the party of the rule of law, the party of the Constitution and so forth. And they simply, simply could care uh, less about, uh, uh, about the, uh, about the oaths. Um, they mocked it. They besmirched it. It just means nothing to them. It's as if it's as if, I mean, what's so interesting to me about this is it's not as if we have to be naive about this. Throughout American history, it's not odd for people to fail to live up to their oath. But what is odd is for people to denigrate the oath openly. That's what's new. It would be as if the night before you got married, there was a bachelor party or, or, or the equivalent for your intended spouse. And one of you tells your friends, you know, tomorrow we're going to say all this stuff about till death do we part, but I don't mean, I don't, I don't mean any of it. I'm going <laughs> to be cheating on him or her from the day one. I don't, I don't believe any of this shit. I'm just saying it. And um, if you if you were the other, if you were the intended spouse and heard that, you would say, "Why am I doing this?" And that's exactly what happened in impeachment. The Republicans effectively refused, denigrated the marriage vow, you know, in front of the American people. Um, and that's stunningly new. As I say, there's nothing surprising about people genuinely intending to love one another and eventually getting divorced. That's different than from the very beginning saying, I never meant any of this stuff. <laughs> you know? And that's what happened with this oath taking. Uh, is there... And naivete, you mentioned that word earlier. Is there a naivete associated with the Trump presidency? And what I mean by that, you know, there, there's a shared belief that this administration, uh, for good or bad, is an aberration. And do you concern yourself with the fact that we may be codifying and, nor and normalizing some of these behaviors, not just the presidency, but with the other branches of government as well? Yeah, I'm very concerned about that. And uh, um, um, I don't exactly know what to do about it, except the first step is for people like you to get us talking about it. Because if we're cognizant of it, that's the first step to actually undoing some of this uh, stuff. But 
that is, to bringing it to this level of self-consciousness, to having this sort of visceral feeling that this isn't right, this isn't the way it's supposed to be, is the first step to, uh, you know, to restoring what used to be the, the, the old normal as opposed to the new normal. Um, and it's, it is a very important thing. It's sometimes, sometimes it's referred to as the phenomena of Trumpism surviving Trump. We have to worry about that, even if it's in some sort of attenuated form uh, in which it's not connected to the Republican Party. I'll just give you one example. Um, he has normalized the use of Twitter as an instrument of governmental policymaking uh, and presidential policymaking. That's a huge problem in my view. Um, and I think that one easy fix would be for the next president to uh, pretty much eschew the, the use of Twitter for policymaking purposes. I wouldn't go so far as to say that you could never use it, but I would reserve it, one might say, for emergency circumstances. And uh, basically, uh, uh, even Congress could even pass legislation saying that courts cannot, you know, the courts should never recognize a tweet as a legally binding statement of governmental policy. Um, so that would be one step right there, because this notion that in the middle of the night a president just fires off bullshit with no vetting, no nothing, um, is something that could be normalized beyond Trump uh, and might not be even connected to you know his political party. Um, so yeah, I, I think, and that's just an example of something that one could happen, and two, wouldn't be that hard to re... Uh, to, to, to change if you think it through and do it. Uh, taking a momentary uh, uh, self-reflective pause, uh, in, is this conversation, um, uh, along with many others um, around this subject, we're talking about John Bolton's book, and, and uh, are, are we, in effect, aiding and abetting the likelihood that, that there will be more John Bolton-type memoirs and fewer John Dean of Watergate fame testimony because the payoff is bigger if if you're on the if we're on the public rally talking about the memoir. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, uh, uh, you know, I got some pushback on the on the article from people who said something close to what you asked me toward the beginning of our conversation here, which was, is it really that important that he made money if he eventually tells the, tells the truth? And, you know, to some degree, I agree with that criticism, which is uh, we may aid and abet uh, the tendency of some people to try to make money off their memoirs. But, uh, and that's not a good thing, but I'm not, I don't want to, I don't want to go so crazy and suggest that it's the end of the world either. So, you know, I, I, I also um, just wanted to throw out, uh, do you think, you know, what um, you talked about earlier, the, 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 the large percentage of Republicans um, that are still, still supporting the president, do you think some of that is the result, and I'm speaking also of the, uh, the, the, the Republican Party in the Senate, that some of that is a result that that, that party when you have what I'm defining as the browning of America, that par that party becomes a smaller and smaller slice. And so there's almost they're almost forced to ride this train, realizing that it, it may not have a productive stop at the end. 
I mean, are they almost forced? Have they just hitched their wagon too long? How do you see that? Yeah, I'm, I, I'm perplexed a little bit by it uh, because, um, because Trump does not seem to really act consistently in his political self-interest. When he says, for example, he could walk down Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and most of his supporters would stick by him, that's true. But if that's true, then why do you have to spend so much time worrying about them? Uh, the smart uh, political interest move would be to try to reach out to people that don't support you now uh, and to take some policies that maybe are unexpected from your base because the base ain't going anywhere for the reasons you just said. There's no place to go. Um, and uh, it, it's really, in a way, it's mind-bogglingly baffling uh, how an incumbent president could be as stupid as he is about the uses of incumbency, because it wouldn't be that hard to get reelected if, in fact, he reached out and peeled off, you know, suburban Democrat women and so forth with 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 policies that were moderate and so forth, or if he wasn't so gung ho about um, you know, various white supremacist symbols and ideas and so forth. There's no reason for it. He's got all those people. So uh, uh, it's, 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 it's somewhat mystifying, actually, why he, uh, why he behaves the way he does, because it's not actually in his political interest. And it suggests that he's so, he's so focused, actually, on a notion of interest that is foreign to most of us, which is his self-image his literal self-image and what he what he conceives that to be, that it really has him sort of uh, boxed in somewhat. Uh, you know, I want to uh, engage uh, the title of, uh, of one of your recent books, The Rhetorical Presidency, and you sort of touched on it earlier, and I, I was sort of chuckling to myself. Yeah. But, but, but as I understand your argument in that book, is that the rhetorical presidency is largely a 20th century phenomenon and it's neither just simply logical, nor is it benign. And, and do you think, since you wrote that book, there's been the advent of Twitter by, by this yeah, president. Yeah, uh, yeah. Do you think President Trump has changed or altered the notion of the rhetorical presidency in any discernible way? In other words, would you write the book differently had you wrote it knowing what you know now? So it came out again in 2017 with a long afterward in which I reflect <laughs> on your question. And I actually talk about the three, first three months of Trump's presidency, which turned out to be not, by the way, all that different from the rest of his presidency, as it turns out. And uh, the basic point is that um, sometimes, uh, sometimes a, uh, a, a change in degree is so great as to, be, to feel like a change in kind. So uh, on another uh, uh, podcast, I, um, I referred to this uh, uh, as the rhetorical presidency on steroids, Trump is. It's, it's, it's much, much more of the same. And so um, what he, so, so what, what had happened before Trump is that presidents since Woodrow Wilson had normalized the idea that the kinds of techniques that you use to campaign for office were legitimate tools once you were within office, while you were in office. And they became more and more part of the definition of what it meant to be president, that you'd be in a kind of perpetual campaign. However, every president between Woodrow Wilson 
before Trump actually toggled between the traditional understanding of the presidency as a constitutional officer and this new, more public rhetorical face. They would do, you know, they would go back and forth. They would do a rose garden strategy, which was withdrawing from public view, but then they would sometimes go out and campaign for a piece of legislation. But for example, in a crisis like a pandemic, uh, their political interests were much more better aligned with the duties of their office. So they wouldn't actually campaign because people of both parties are inclined to support a president in a crisis. And in fact, uh, Trump, I don't know if you remember that when the pandemic first started, even though he was late to it, uh, the public opinion polls were the best of his term because people wanted him to succeed, even people that hate him, because people want this pandemic under control. You support the president sort of naturally like you would in a war or something like that. Uh, that quickly dissipated. And the reason it dissipated is because he doesn't toggle between the sort of rhetorical mode and the uh, constitutional mode. And he has amped up the rhetorical side to Orwellian dimensions. Uh, he's, he's introduced uh, these three Orwellian features that really weren't visible in the presidency before. He repeats everything uh, incessantly. He proliferates the outrageous statements he makes, which is to say, he says, a lot of them, they're sometimes described by journalists as like being hit with a fire hose because you don't know what outrage to write the story about. There's so many of them. And then finally, he projects his vices onto his foes. So if he's corrupt, before you can say much about his corruption, he says Hillary's corrupt. Lock her up. Or whoever the, it doesn't matter, Hillary's just the exemplar. Any, anybody he names as the enemy, he says they actually manifest the things that are true about him and untrue about them. You know, Joe Biden is somehow in cahoots with, I don't know, foreign entities, when it's him that's in foreign entities. So this notion of projection, repetition, and proliferation are these three Orwellian elements that have elevated his version of the rhetorical presidency into a kind of class of its own, a, 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 a destructive class of its own. Professor Jeffrey Tullis, University of Texas Political Science, I want to thank you, sir, for joining me uh, for this hour on The Public Morality. Much appreciated. Much appreciate your comments, sir. Thank you for having me. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Public Morality at their studios. Public Morale is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. In the words of Martin Luther King Jr., we may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.